Start again, start again, begin. Start again, everyone. For me, it's just that's the that's the always thing. It's like I just don't feel like I'm the guy to tell the story. I mean, even though it's like my story or you know, my family's story, like I just feel like there's probably somebody out there better equipped to tell it. Say. Goodbye to our old life. It's a brand new world. And the Scotch help. You might have all your. <laughs> you might all have all your interviews. Interviewees have a half a glass of Scotch at 10:30 in the morning. <laughs> Welcome to Caterpillar Goo. This is Flora. And this is Rod. We're starting season two. Yay! I'm excited. Rod's been doing all the work though. And for a while I was feeling guilty for calling myself a partner when I haven't been doing anything. But he still likes me as his partner, so I guess I'll stick around. I do come up with all the magic. She's the magical one. I am the magical one. I'm the inadequate tech support. <laughs> <laughs> And this is kind of an echoey room. I wonder if you can tell. Does it sound echoey? Echo, echo, echo. And there's kids playing outside and there's wind chimes. Yep. So what have we been doing this whole off season? We went tubing. We did. And movies and kids and work and kids and work. And kids. And some romance in between. <laughs> so this episode is about old people. I'm kind of scared of getting old. You're already there. How does it feel? <laughs> it's pretty good. Don't worry about it. Oh, good. feels better than when I was young. I'm happier <laughs> and healthier as an old man than I was as a young man. So you got lots to look forward to. You are wiser and more confident. <laughs> you know, I feel like a lot of people are scared of going into nursing home when they're old. And I think I'm one of the rare ones who are looking forward to it. I mean, why not have somebody plan my day, you know, give me meals, and, and then I would have friends around, I wouldn't be alone in my house. A lot of people are reluctant to go in a nursing home. You're going to be in one of those communities in Florida where everybody's driving around on golf carts and everything. Yes! <laughs> I don't think that's the experience for everybody. Hmm. But that's what this story is about, is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the nursing home. Good. I'm not. I really like this story. This story is told by Rick Hayden. He's my brother. It's called Invisible Baseball. I really wish that I had better audio equipment at the time I recorded it. This is the last one I did on my ancient laptop. So the recording kind of didn't work out very well. So I hope you'll... Have patience and stick with it because the story's worth it, especially the end when you get to the end. It's going to make you cry. Oh, you love crying. I do love crying. Is that what happens when we get old? <laughs> I saw you cry just yesterday, so don't even tell me you're not. What? Edit that out. <laughs>
Meg's father was living in Springfield, Missouri, and we as a family had gone to visit him there on his 80th birthday with the intent of talking with him for the first time about moving to Texas so that we could be closer to him. But the unfortunate thing that happened is on that trip, he became very ill and had health emergency that landed him in the hospital there and was proved to be life-threatening at the time and ultimately resulted in emergency medical intervention and surgery. And so at the, at the end of that summer, then he moved to Austin, but he disembarked the plane on a, a stretcher and then was immediately transferred to a true nursing home. I think his first year living here was in three or four different rehab facilities, just dealing with their certain things that could get him back to that level of independence. I think it was you know, maybe in the fall of that year when Haley was in second grade and Gage was in kindergarten, that then he recovered to the point where he could move to Beckett Meadows. I call it an assisted living facility, but you know, it was, it's most definitely not a nursing home. There's a nursing home component to it, but feels a little bit like a hospital because it's full of the sounds and smells and, and, and things that you might associate with a hospital. But on the whole, it, it felt more like apartments, but specifically designed to the purpose that they were supposed to serve. They took good care to make it a very, you know, a livable place at this particular place. There was a, a central courtyard where, you know, all of those rooms that are along those corridors either had, had a window to the exterior of the property, looked out over the parking lot and grounds to the outside, or they looked back in on a central courtyard. And that interior courtyard was a really well-kept, beautiful place. There was always fresh flowers planted there in pots. There was a, a gazebo there where, where somebody could go and sit in a, in a protected space to the interior building that opened to the sky and fresh air and, and all that. We didn't always go as a, entirely as, as a, a family necessarily, you know, but Meg would at least see Ed at least once a week. But, I mean, it was more often than that most of the time, and surprisingly, the kids wanted to go most of the time. And so there was, a, you know, there was an activities director there that would arrange a Valentine's Day concert and Fourth of July concert. Those sort of things were happening in the evenings, and we were regulars at, uh, because the kids loved it so much, and it, it also made it, it was an interesting break in routine or whatever. Yeah, I think they both were a very bright light in his life, you know, in the last stages of his life, where you know, there wasn't a lot going on for him except for for Meg and, and his his daughters and then his grandkids coming to see him. And, but I think they they also were very much so for a lot of people that we just got to know, got got to meet there. You know, it was it got to the point where anytime we brought our kids, there were a seeming dozen or, or more people who would all be clearly happy to see them, talk to them about what was going on with them at school and you know, whatever, and then 
and then most you know, most to the point, I guess, this community of um, older men um, that were living in this facility that would that, that that had a history in baseball that exactly dovetailed with Gage's newly developing passion and love for baseball. Beyond, you know, the, the first 
general moments of a game, and then it's all just uh, after that about the coaches and the parents trying to corral and continue to make the game happen, and so it becomes this, you know, this sort of bizarre scripted enterprise where it's like, okay, we can get from action to cut if we can just corral these kids and keep them focused long enough to, you know. At the time, I, I didn't recognize that Gage didn't fit the, the, the paradigm exactly. Every T-ball game that he played in took him from beginning to end of the game. And he's kind of, he's kind of a math kid, because from the very beginning, the thing that for him that the game was all about was like that there's just a logic to it and a beauty that he appreciates and that it's a it's a numbers game and it's a mental game and everything and even from that age of five he was like totally invested in the idea that it was one two three strikes you're out one two three outs and the inning changes and then seven and you know it's all this thing that builds up it's, it's, it's always what he's been interested in about and so that you know stage of his life when i look back on i remember it was just it was so electric and intense because there was just so much to learn just to to be entering the game and for me to be entering it too because not coming from a baseball family really the way that the whole first years of him playing the sport for me was learning everything that he was learning yeah, there is so much more to it than I ever knew at the time. Like I had no idea at that time how much Cage and I both had out there ahead of us to learn together just about this thing that was going to become the you know, absolute central passion in his, in his life. He left Little League very early. Because I'm just not sure exactly how it happened. We were totally conventional T-ball parents and Little League parents and had no background whatsoever or any knowledge about select baseball and club baseball, which is apparently something that everybody in Texas or any baseball state knows about, but we didn't know about it at the time. Somehow Gage found out about it, that there was this other stream for playing baseball that was much more serious and there were you know, professional coaches and professional coaches who played at collegiate or professional level, teaching kids to play baseball in essentially academies. Like he found out about that and he realized that they were approaching the game that he wanted to approach the game. He didn't want to like play with a bunch of kids who half cared about it. He wanted to play with a bunch of kids that were like, serious. And so somehow, I, I still to this day don't know where it came from, but he he learned about tryouts for a club baseball program that wasn't even in our area. He found out about tryouts for an 8U coach pitch team and um, convinced his, you know, convinced me pretty easily, I guess, but then convinced his mother somehow, which is still 
astonishing to me how you know how he pulled that off as a seven-year-old to to go to those those tryouts and you know we didn't understand it at the time even the the age rankings I didn't didn't have any idea at the time that when he took I think he was like barely seven when he went and participated in these tryouts that that I was bringing probably the youngest kid they'd ever seen to their tryouts and so just sent him out there and didn't realize I had no idea that I was sending him out to actually try out with a bunch of nine-year-olds and so you know ultimately Gage did went through that tryout process was selected to play on this competitive AU team convinced his mom with an earnestness that I think is beyond most eight-year-olds I've ever known that it was important to him and important enough for us to support him in it and at least consider it and then for Gage that was absolutely he took to it right away loved it but it was being dropped out of the, the frying pan into the fire so he went from that little league to being coached by a coach who was a semi-pro baseball player in New Jersey. And so it was like New Jersey <laughs> coach, serious competitive baseball, and Gates just dropped right into the middle of that and just immediately committed to it and committed to, to doing the absolute best he can from the beginning. And so then suddenly in that period of life like every minute with him was can we practice can we throw back can we play catch dad can we play cat and we spent like all this time like if we went to the mall he wouldn't want to go into the mall he would try right away to convince me that Megan Haley should go in and take care of whatever business we had to take care of and that he and I should play catch in the parking lot because he's just learning to handle a glove and throw a ball and throw it well. You know, I mean, already at that age, they're telling him, no, not rainbows. We want you to throw it on a rope, you know. And so here's this seven-year-old trying to learn all that to like, fit in and be competitive with these, you know, these other boys who've been doing exactly that since they were, you know, probably the moment they were able to walk. Their, their dads were teaching them how to throw a ball on a rope, you know. It's interesting because Meg has, when Haley was young, Meg started a practice of writing letters to the kids that she keeps in, in books. Like, you know, her, her ability to see the future and see the value that certain things will have in the future and kind of anticipate that present is, is remarkable. And, you know, she's a very much stop and smell the roses kind of. I'm, I'm, I'm always like, let's keep moving. <laughs> there's, there's a schedule. There's a goal. Let's go. And she's like, well, let's let's stop for two seconds and look at this tree. And so, in that sort of wisdom that she has, she she started writing letters to the kids from, I think, Haley at maybe at the age of four. So for Gage, that's an even younger age. And in, in Gage's book, she has the first 
his first mention of baseball sort of captured in a letter that she wrote to him. And she even wrote at the time that, that she didn't really know where it was coming from. And it was just his, it, it's just completely internal and from his own, his own place. Tied up into it is, is you know, the two things that have, have seemingly always been present for Gage and are still totally present in his life now as a 17-year-old are his just love and what he calls respect for the game of baseball. And then his, secondly, his, his love and respect and just comfort, like remarkable comfort level with senior citizens or, or elder, just older folks in general from the, from this same age. You know, he, he, we, we visited all their grandparents and so he had a relationship with all of his grandparents and then, and, and, and both of our kids have always had a very deep love for their grandparents. Gage has just always had a sort of unexplainable different connection with grandparents though, but not just grandparents, like also the friends of grandparents and the, you know, and yeah, just any, but we, we would go, we, we would often go to spend a, a, a weekend with Meg's mom and stepdad at the, at the, at the I mean, we just always refer to it as the lake. It was, you know, it's a community where it was a lot of like-minded older people who were spending their, you know, whatever time they could there, fishing, boating, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, there'd be a ton of kids and grandkids, cousins, you know, all of that. There would always be tons of children around to uh, to play with, and Gage was always, always, always more interested in, in, in being with the grandparents, the older people, whether it was playing cards or frying fish or just whatever, you know, fishing itself. It was just he was always more interested in being with the older folks than kids his own age. And I think that that's, I mean, that's just the way that he lives his life now. That's even more true now than that ever was. But it's, yeah, it's always been there. And it's, and it's just a comfort and conversation. It's funny, I, 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 can, I remember times just looking back on him, just sitting in a lawn chair next to, you know, a grandpa and, or his Papa Ed or his Papa Jack, and uh, especially Papa Jack and one of his friends sitting in a chair between them and just looking at him and going, yeah, he looks, it just looks the same. It looks like one of, that, that looks like three old guys there sitting there talking about their childhood fishing, you know, where one of them is actually six years old. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's been many instances in my life where you could, you could look at Gage sitting with a couple of old guys like that and just think, that's that's an old man that got put in a in a young man's body. So yeah, you know, I think that that, that may partly play a role in 
you know, these relationships that he developed with, with seniors you know, at these facilities. Is, it, was, it was a place that he could go where he got a lot of positive feedback for the stuff that he was interested in and wanted to talk about, and guys wanted to talk to him about stuff that he was interested in. And, and, you know, he just he just had this, this this group of guys who would want to know how he was doing and interested in what he was learning and where you know as he got past t-ball into the coach pitch and then eventually started playing club baseball I wanted to know where he was playing and always had stories to tell him about shoeless Joe and, and yeah I mean players that played so long ago that Gage really should have no interest in them and and most young players still like you know even 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 the high school players that he plays with now i would bet that half of them had no idea who she was joe jackson was or you know they might know the big names but they wouldn't know a lot but gage can tell you babe ruth's shoe size and the reason that he can tell you that is that when he was six years old he had a conversation with one of his papa ed's neighbors who told him Hey, you know the remarkable thing about Babe Ruth? He had tiny feet. And that's something that Gage has remembered his entire life since and becomes something that you know, is somehow a part of who he's become and is something he can tell you right now. So, you know, he, he can tell you things about the game and the history of the game that he, he has no business really knowing. I think all of that goes back to that time in his life and those those old guys that he used to sit and chat with and get back about it. And I can, it's, a, it's another one of just the beautiful memories I have from Beckett Meadows, that there was one of those times where I think Meg had gone up to, to get her dad and prep him to bring him down. And I happened to look over and at the, at the end of, well, Port Cashier, where you entrance, you have to entrance this place, there's, you know, they always kept, rows of rocking chairs on other sides where you see residents sitting sometimes and like you know i think it, I think it was new that year too they had also got a dog for the residents so there was this you know yellow golden retriever old you know slow moving dog that lived at the place that that dog was often sitting at the at the rocking chairs just looking for anybody to pet him for a minute i mean he just lived for that you know, it's, it's like going back to you know him with with Papa Jack at the lake. I looked over and he's he's sitting in a middle rocking chair between two other old guys in rocking chairs on either side of him, just rocking at the same cadence and petting this this old dog. And I, I walked over and sure as shit, the three of them were sitting there in their rocking chairs just talking about baseball. So Gage was extremely active kid that required a ton of space, loved going to this place, was always energized when we, when we went there. His sister, the same thing, always happy to go visit, liked the place, but the, the, the difference between the two of them is that she had 
a personality that allows her to sit down in a small pace and carry on conversations. She could do that. Gage, you had like maybe 10 minutes of that with him. And then he was just, you know, as he always did most plays, he was sprawled out on the floor and like flopping and kicking things over. He's just always been a boy that, that required a good amount of clear space to be in or something was going to get knocked over or broken. And, um, you know, and as a parents at the time, for Megan and I, that was like almost always a constant stress in our lives. By the time we get to Beckett Meadows and he's starting to play baseball and all of that is kind of going on around it, that's just a little bit more of a window into what it, what it was like to try to manage him at the, at the time. So the, the way that that segues into Beckett Meadows and, and, and Ed was that the, the place to be able to do that was in that courtyard that I described, you know, this, this sort of carefully landscaped, delicate, full of beautiful flowers and flower pots and elderly people sitting, you know, watching a gazebo. And Gage, unable to, to sit beyond the first 15 minutes in, in Ed's room while Meg took care of this, like, regular business. And so it was just always, hey, can we go throw? Can we go throw? Can we go throw? And so that became a part of the routine there was visit Papa Ed, throw a little, visit a little more, throw a little, visit a little more. But the only place that we had to, to really go, because the, you know, the parking lot wasn't conducive. And so we just, we needed a way to be close, but for him to blow off some steam and then go back to the sitting and visiting and then go exercise and then go back to sitting and visiting. And so what I tried for, yeah, I don't know, three weeks or a month or, or whatever, was to go into that courtyard and throw with him. And in, in the beginning, when he wasn't, when he couldn't throw that hard, uh, it was like, even if a, if a ball was a little bit errant, it wasn't gonna cause too much damage. But then, even in the course of the few, first few weeks, he was learning and developing so fast, it, like, right away, okay, now this kid's throwing harder, if he, if he does go wild or something, it's going through a window, or it's breaking a flower pot, or something, and it became, it became such a stressful thing for me because, and because it's also a very quiet environment too. And so you don't want to be like trying to contain this kid, but also allow him to spend time with his, with his grandpa, but also not be disturbing to residents who might be sleeping or you know, whatever. It just, it became a very stressful thing for me to play catch with him in this, this courtyard to the point where it was just like, what started out as fun wasn't fun anymore because I would just spend the whole time, every time he threw the ball, going, man, what are we going to break? Or is anybody upset? You know, like every minute waiting to, for somebody in administration to say, hey, you can't freaking do that here. It's a confined space. And so somewhere along the way, and I, I mean, honestly, I have no idea where the what put this thought in my head, other than, you know, that on top of all the rest of the gigs has always been a very imaginative kid.
kid. You know, he would he'd play a lot of, especially when he was a toddler, he'd play a lot of imagination games. Hey, I'm, imagine I'm whatever. And so I knew he was like perfectly capable of role playing and you know, imagination games. And I think, I think that I had had read something where it was like you know athletes talking about the the power of visualization in the sports that they play. And it's always fascinated me because there's certain athletes that will who write a lot about that like mental practice is almost effective as actual physical practice, which you know it's like a fascinating idea, right? And I, and I thought, well, if we could just like visualize this, if we could imaginary practice playing catch, maybe he's still getting something out of it, and then I don't have to worry about the damn ball and like you know, all the stress and then we'll go to the park later and we'll throw a real ball but at least maybe while we're here at Beckett Meadows we could just imagine playing catch and thinking that like there was no way he was going to buy it or whatever you know a kid that's like you know so interested in throwing a real ball like I figured he'd just blow me off but I suggested it one time Explained to him why, you know, I was concerned about breaking a window or something, and he totally bought it. It was just like, oh, sure. And so we started, I just put the ball off the side, and we started playing catch with an imaginary ball. And, you know, I mean, it sounds so silly, but it's, it's like, you know, it actually works. You know, it, it makes me think now more about the idea of visual visualization to train in sports, because it... Once you stop, and if you take it seriously and you stop, you imagine like a real timing and a real, mo you're, you're going through the real motion and you're, you're not just, it's not that much different, I guess, because you, your brain can make it up. Real glove, all, everything, everything but the ball. He had a coach that said, if you set, I mean, said this even to seven-year-olds, that you're not going to set on foot on my ball field unless you're wearing a ball cap. You're not a ball player if you're not wearing a baseball cap. It was one of the many tenets that his first coach had. And Matt Gage took that serious as a heart attack. Still does. You, I don't think you will ever see him throwing a baseball without a baseball cap on. And so both of us in baseball caps, gloves, you know. You know, sometimes if he'd had a practice or a game or something, he'd be in his full-blown uniform out there playing catch with no ball. But it was surprising to me how convincing an experience it was even for me. Because you even like when you're playing imaginary catch, you even snap your glove closed on the ball when you imagine that it came into because you don't want the imaginary ball to fall out of your real glove. So you've got a you know, you've got a close on. And so that is like sort of yeah, that's the innocent beginning of it was just me trying to manage you know, my young son in this field, not have something disastrous happening, not cause something embarrassing for my wife, not get ourselves banned from this facility, you know, like just, you know, all this stuff in my mind, we just started playing imaginary catch. And then that's where for me, the, you know, I may get choked up going forward from here because that's, you know, following this point in the story is when you know, this grows into what for me is still one of the most 
beautiful experiences and beautiful memories of my entire adult life. I think that maybe this is a story that's more transformative for me and engaged because I think it was just such a natural part of his whole life. But I do think what happens after this with an imaginary catch changed me maybe in a way that that I, I don't even have an understanding of now. Like I, I can't say how it changed me, but it's it's such a present memory in my mind that I know that it, it's had as much an effect on me as as, as any of the other major events in my life. So we, we, we got in the habit of playing imaginary catch and you know I think that there were probably happened one or two weekends where there happened to be some residents sitting in the courtyard just enjoying some sunshine while we were playing it. And there's two men that I, I can't name them, I don't think we knew them, but there was, there was a couple of guys that took an interest enough so that I started to notice that when we started to play Imaginary Catch, they would turn up. And so then, it was never anything that we thought of. There was no plan to it. There was a just particular sunny Saturday where we were out there doing that, and these guys came out where they could look on while we were playing Imaginary Catch. And then, Gage made a pretend throw to me, and this was the first time it happened. One of the old guys, just out of the blue, all of a sudden said, Whoa, boy, he really hummed that one in there. And so suddenly somebody else was seeing the, the invisible ball. Somebody had seen it. So then he responded to that and started imaginary throwing the ball harder. And so then I imaginary started catching the ball as if it were thrown harder. So now I'm like, oh, whoa, geez, that one stung, you know, that kind of thing, which of course feeds it even more with a seven-year-old. And so then it just started growing from there and was just amazing. Other people would begin to participate and it went from being a game of catch to a a full-blown game. I'm not sure how it happened, but it was like we we set up in a catcher and pitcher position, and Gage would be then be pitching to an invisible batter, and the the residents would be the one that determined what happened with a particular pitch. I'd, I'd step up to catch for Gage. He'd get up there and he'd fake pitch, and it'd be like, oh, you know, that was just outside, you know. And we would take those cues and, and different of the residents would say different things. Like it just, it was this just amazing, unplanned, organic thing. And then of course it caught Haley's interest. She wanted to participate. So she would come out and join us and then we'd have a batter too. And then once you have like a real batter, not imaginary batter, it just, it got, it just got so wild. It was so fun and so and so 
pure and beautiful. One ball, one strike, two out here on the top of the first, no score. The pitch is hit high in the air to left center field, Williams and Pierce all over. They're both calling for it. Williams makes the catch as Pierce all crosses in back of him in deep left center field. And for the Yankees in the top of the first inning, no runs. And it just, you know, that is what. You know, now, now I talk about I say, yeah, when, when Gage was little, we used to play invisible, invisible baseball. My seven-year-old son pitching an invisible ball to my nine-year-old daughter and these these old guys who had loved the game and understood it well enough that they would call out in a, sort of an old-fashioned play-by-play like you were listening to an old game on the radio and, oh, she hit that one deep. And then Haley would run the bases and as she was running the bases, rounding second, somebody would call out, oh, held up on a triple. And then she would know to stop at third base, and then you know we put, you know, and then there'd be an imaginary runner for her at third, and she'd go back and hit again, and her brother would pitch. Larson's delivery, swung on there, to drive to deep left field, and that ball is going up against the wall. Here comes White on his way to the plate. Here's the relay into the plate, two back throws, and it is not in time. It's a double for Brewer. And that, uh, you know, I, I don't know how long that that lasted. I think the end of it was just sort of as organic as its beginning. You know, I don't know if a couple of the key spectators just got to a point in that stage of their life where they couldn't come out anymore, and that took some of the magic out of it, or if if it just got routine enough for everybody that that took some out of the magic out of it. But there was no there was no definitive end to it. You know, there was no day where it was like, okay, no more invisible baseball. It just sort of like most things in life just sort of petered out without a real you know, moment of of closure, but. You know, it's, I mean, absolutely something obviously affected me in, a, in, a, in an emotional way, still does. Um, that just is absolutely one of the most magical things that I've experienced. I don't share this story often, and, and I've never, I don't think I've ever shared it in this much depth, but from time to time where, when I, when I talk about it just anecdotally, usually it's, it's, it's to make the argument against accepting the perception that these are 
just depressing, stress-filled, dark places. Usually, if, if I'm bringing this story up for any reason, it's to convince somebody that even though when you walk into an assisted living facility like that, or even a, a rehab facility, although it's, 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 it's a little more difficult to find the beauty in those places, it's still there. That's what you know, I came to know from that experience is that you gotta get you gotta get over the hump, you gotta get over your discomfort, you gotta get over your perception that what you're seeing is because of the filter you're running through it that it's automatically depressing. Look past all that. Yeah, because it it, it, it would have been very easy, a very easy mistake for us to make. You know, based on the first days of those visits, to say this is going to be hard on our kids, right? And I think that probably a lot of parents do do that. Now, it's it's a very natural parenting instinct to say, I need to protect my kids from seeing this, seeing older folks in pain, seeing old, seeing some of the indignities that happen in those kind of places. It would be a very natural thing to say, I need to shield my kids from this. But that was one where we did sit down and have a conversation with one another about should we or should we not involve our kids in, in this experience that we know that we are going to have to go through. Do we involve them or not? And we decided, yes, we do. And that, that's probably the best parenting decision we've ever made because there is, there is vibrant, real life still going on there that can be participated in. I've had this conversation a number of times with, with mom and dad too because now, you know, now that they've moved here, they, they're often saying, here, we, just, we don't want to be a burden. Um, but because of that experience and because of Invisible Baseball and so many other wonderful things that, that happened to us in that stage of our kids' lives, I know and I tell her all the time that it's, it's, you're, you're not a burden at all. You, you're having a difficult time appreciating how much value you still bring through all of our lives, and you know, it's, it's understand. You know, I understand her her point of view because I think that I would feel the same way you know, in her shoes. Um, but the thing that, that I know is that all of us, those people that we've, we've met and kind of struggled through that last stage of human life along with, have have brought so much more value to our lives and to our kids' lives than, than any effort it took to participate in the last stages of their lives. That, you know, I, I, I hope that our own parents can begin to be convinced of that. I believe that, that mom and dad are starting to, to hear it, but I also hope that, that anybody who's proudly made it beyond the age of 70 in our lives or in anybody's lives. Uh, no, it's just, you know, it's, it's just the beginning and every day they, they wake up and spend time with you know, their grandkids is, is valuable and, and appreciated.
now I've got I've got two kids that that feel it ten times beyond me than what I feel it. There it is. Invisible baseball. Are you crying, Flora? Did it make you cry? No, it's allergies. <laughs> that was Invisible Baseball by my brother, Rick Hayden. That was the first episode of season two. We've got several more lined up. We've got plans for some more after that. Flora, you're doing it. You're doing an interview this week, right? I am. Are you excited? I'm pretty excited. There's two interviews. I'm currently working on it might take months though i don't know yeah there's a couple that i'm trying to chase that's hard it's harder than i would have thought trying to get people to speak into a microphone yep it is well for me i feel like the people i want to interview are don't live here so trying to figure out how to in, do interview you know people out of state yeah we're gonna figure out how to how to do facetime or skype or something but Thanks for listening to the first episode of season two of Caterpillar Goo. It's been fun. I I enjoyed our little break. I'm excited to be back in action, though. We'll see you next time, probably in a couple of weeks, for the next episode. And that one, is that one going to be you? Which one's that going to be? Flora's got one coming up. That's pretty exciting. She's so cute. You're going to love it. So don't be afraid to grow old. Take chances, transform, and fly. No. Become a butterfly? An old butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Are we done? See you next time. Bye.